0: Hello, welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I am one of the co-hosts of this show. We have a guest producer. Her name's Perrin. She's one of our interns. And we also have a guest co-host. They are both illustrious and remarkable. Aaron McGinnis, how are you?
1: Oh, good to be here, Peter. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm excited to talk today. I'm really passionate about uh, what Daryl's written about and talked about. So this should be a really good one. Yes. Well, we will
0: be uh, introducing our our guest in the moment. But the question that we have, uh, Aaron McGinnis is our student ministry leader. Uh, the question we have is, why don't pastors understand my generation? And we are here with Daryl Hall, who is the author of this book. Your first time hosting, and you put the book up as a display. That that's a boss move, right there. Well,
1: you know, I was just reading it, and it's <laughs> so beautiful. I, I'm sure Daryl <laughs> designed it himself. So <laughs> I had to I had to put that up there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Well, hey, why don't you kick us off and get us started? Go ahead, Aaron.
1: Yeah, so uh, Daryl is uh, a campus pastor at the Elizabeth Baptist Church in uh, Conyers. Is that right? Conyers, Georgia? (laughs) That's cool. There we go. Got it. Where he regularly preaches, he teaches across five generations, which we're going to hear a lot about today. He recently wrote a book, speaking across generations. So the focus of our episode, we're going to dive into that. And my, you know, before we get deep into the intergenerational uh, discipleship and those types of talks, Daryl, would would you just share a little bit about your story?
2: Yeah. First of all. Thank you for having me, Peter and uh, and Aaron. I'm so glad to be able to meet you and be, you know, a part of your, your first time uh, hosting in this space. And so I'm glad to be here. A little bit about me. I'm born and raised in the metro Atlanta area. I am um, a, a son of my city and a son of my church, if I could use those metaphors, you know, to describe myself. In the sense that I was raised in the inner city of Atlanta, educated in our public school system and live pretty much in Atlanta proper my entire childhood and most of my adulthood. Uh, the church that I'm a part of now, which I get a chance to serve as, uh, as one of the campus pastors for five campus a multi-site church, is the church I was born and raised in. So I'm a prenatal member of this church. I accepted the Lord Jesus at this church as a child. Uh, was baptized there and was discipled through VBS and Sunday School and Children's Choir and Youth Usher Board, and I've been able since accepting my call to preach to also contribute, you know, on the ministerial side as pulpit assistant to my senior pastor, which was one of my many uh, honors as a as a teen preacher, believe it or not. Also, as a young adult pastor and youth pastor, and now pastor of one of uh, one of our campuses. I've been married for 15 years, and I met my wife in my church as well, <laughs> Uh, so, been married for 15 years. We have three boys, and we reside. They uh, stay before in the Metro Atlanta area.
0: You know, before we get all too serious, I, I just got to check: Are you full into Atlanta sports, or do you have different allegiances? You know.
2: Oh, I am full baptism by fire. <laughs> <laughs> into all Atlanta sports teams. My favorite teams in any league or sport that I watch is Atlanta or Atlanta based So that means Atlanta Dream are my favorite WNBA team. The Hawks are my favorite NBA team. The Braves, the World Series, Champion Braves are my favorite MLB team. Georgia Bulldogs are my favorite college uh, football team. Um.
0: You know, the only thing I'm just going to press it, you left out the Falcons. <laughs> Are the Falcons in there?
2: Oh, and my favorite NFL team. You know, it's I'm grief-stricken, Peter. I am in counseling regularly and tarrying before the Lord on behalf of the Falcons. So I think my grief <laughs> caused me to forget my beloved Dirty Birds. Yes, I am a Falcons fan.
0: Well, you're, you're in good company because you're in Buffalo Bills country and – uh we have a. We will not name that team, but anyways, let's. Uh, let's just say we had a whole sermon
1: okay. series on lamentations after the, <laughs> after the playoffs.
2: <laughs> oh. Okay, all right, you, you all understand. Yeah. But y'all, y'all, y'all are looking good though. Y'all, y'all stock is rising, and uh, as an avid fantasy football coach and participant, I know that you guys got a few studs on your team too. So.
0: Hey, that's what we love to hear. You know, you come for the theology, get free fantasy advice. That's what we're talking about. Let me me kind of start here. Uh, You know, before we jump in and kind of hear a little bit more of your story, you know, our culture seems to play up the generational differences. I'd say positively and negatively, everything from stereotypes, to um just our phraseology just the conflict and i guess for someone that wrote a book about kind of sending the message of jesus to generations how do you manage that tension of are we overdoing it are we underdoing it you know what are some of your thoughts on that
2: that's a great question I, my, my first you know uh inkling is that we're overdoing it in the sense that we don't we overdo everything. Um, and when I hear, you know, these private spats or, you know, one generation taking a shot at another generation or people throwing out lingo or sociological terminology that they don't really know the accuracy of it, like calling people in the children's ministry millennials, (laughs) uh, you know, when I hear that kind of stuff tossed back and forth as, um, you know, slights towards generational cohorts that are not, you know, the one that the speaker or whoever's talking is a, is within, then you know, sometimes I think we overdo it. I think we can definitely um, cause differences what God meant for diversity. And I think we can make enemies of people that we should be, you know, trying to, to, to have a rich fellowship with. And we do it in every demographic area or subset, right? that divides our nation, whether that's political, racial, socioeconomic, gender, these differences are real and they matter uh, in the fabric of humanity. Uh, And I think God allows or created these differences for diversity, but we use them and we overuse them to create division. So in that sense, I think we do the same thing generationally, I think we overdo it. But then here's the flip side. I think we overdo the criticism and I think we underdo the potential for a beautiful bouquet of uh, intergenerational beauty. I think we underdo that part. I think mm-hmm. we, it's easier to step on another generational group and overdo some of the minute differences than it is to subject oneself to the study of what makes that generation tick. And be willing to adjust one's preferences to give honor to, you know, brothers and sisters of that generation. So I think we underdo in the sense of the opportunity that is ours to to do something great in the Lord's church.
1: No, I love I love what you say, the, the beautiful bouquet, right? And I feel like I've been hearing that more and more, maybe not that exact uh, terminology, but this idea of how can we get back to one church? How can we get back to generations discipling one another? And I, I was talking with Daryl Pete right before this, and the beauty of one growing up in the same church and being at that church, and it's a church your grandmother started going too. So we're talking decades of investment and uh, just the generational discipleship that's happening there is beautiful. And um, when we look at culture right now, I'm sure you'd agree, we use those generations as like ammunition to blame for what's wrong. And I think sometimes that can seep into the church too, right? Where we use those generational differences as the main cause of what's wrong with this church. And that's why I'm going to take my group here and you take your group over there and and, and it's just tough to see. But I'm super glad we have people like you analyzing this stuff and working for a, a better future. And I'm curious, as you've kind of done this research that not, we haven't done, right? I was looking through your book, so many great graphs. If you're an Excel user, you'd just be living life reading Daryl's book. Um, as you've researched this generation, how have you like, personally changed and grown in the process?
2: Oh, man, what a great question. I think that so what what has now become a book that I'm amazed that God let me write started as just an inkling of an idea, just like a you know, hmm, you know, I wonder, kind of a hunch type thing, and it started as a project for my dissertation for my doctoral um, degree in seminary. Once I finished the academic portion. That's only part of, that's not even, you know, the full gamut. That's maybe, you know, 30% of what became the book. There was more research on the back end I was able to go back and do in addition to that with, with my friends at Barna. And what I discovered through researching the generations is, or how it shaped me is, I think it gave me even more of a compassionate heart than I presumed I'd already had. Like, I thought I was loving towards people who are different generations and different life stages. And I thought I was perceptive to their, you know, unique needs. But having researched it and understood, for example, that baby boomers are in this new life stage called second adulthood. And and reading through that and understanding the complexity of it, fears involved for that generation in that life stage. I think it deepened my heart of compassion for each and um, and showed me that though I'm starting at what it means to speak to or communicate with, you know, these generations, that is so much more churches could be doing to meet the static generational groups in their dynamic life stage progressions. So, like Boomers are always boomers, but they haven't always been in second adulthood and senior adulthood. So what does it mean to be a static group going through a dynamic experience from a generational standpoint? And it just, it made me deeply compassionate. Um, and it made me less defensive as a millennial. Um, You know, because oftentimes my generation is much maligned and, you know, I didn't go into the book hoping to, you know, defend us. <laughs> but as I got into the research, I realized that my generation didn't need defending. My generation needed to be understood within its sociological and cultural context so it could be appropriately loved and so that the gospel as a real solution could be adequately um, contextualized. And it wasn't just for millennials, it was for for every generation. It really gave me a heart of compassion that I thought I already had, but you can't have until you go deeper on some
1: stuff. Yeah, there's two things I hear you saying that I absolutely love. One is just that idea of, uh, biblical idea, to know is to love, right? And it seems like as you did research on these groups that, you know, society doesn't help us interact with. It likes to put us into little groups, right? And once you did research and got to know these, you know, the stats on these people, maybe even talked with these people, they turned from a statistic or, you know, that generation that we blame into humans who are all going through things and the more you knew about them, the more you grew in love and compassion for them. So I, I you know, one of the things you probably talk about is, um, to, yeah, getting to know, uh, people in those demographics, getting to understand and try to figure out more about them will grow you in compassion and make you want to have those connections and do intergenerational ministry, um, which is amazing. And then the second thing I heard you say is that it was really interesting to me, these static groups that are in dynamic changes or, you know, moving dynamically through life. And it makes me think about how can we as the church do even transitions uh, better, like recognizing that, you know, these parents of high schoolers, in my sense, might be empty nesters soon. Their life's going to radically change. These these young adults who don't have kids are now married. Now they're having children. Their life's going to radically change. And sometimes we as the church don't even think about the movement of it. We only think about the static groups. So yeah, that might be an area that we can come together and think about harder and harder about to love our congregation and our generations.
2: If I could, Aaron, to that last point, you know, I think that's great insight by you. And that's, that's definitely what I was trying to communicate. Uh, I definitely think we're in sync, you know, on that piece. My hope was I added a tool into the appendix, uh, into the appendices that is a graph that I advocate for speakers or ministry leaders to update once a year. And to keep somewhere visible wherever you do your ministry work or your ministry planning or your sermonic writing, because it keeps it to your point in our face. And that graph is just an example. It's something that Haddon Robinson advocated in Preaching Magazine that I took and adapted to add the generational uh, static. You know, it's static on one side, boomers, always boomers, (laughs) but it's dynamic on the other side. They won't always be in these life. Uh, stages that they're currently in, but even to your point of experiences that parallel those stages, like being an empty nester, empty nester, being a you know a first-time homeowner, being a you know college graduate now out in the job market. I think if we keep this <laughs> the complex, you know, uh, experience of the people we address before us somewhere, I think it will help us as we shape the way we try to reach them.
0: I love where this conversation's going. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, I feel like a bystander to you and Aaron, and that's a lot of fun, which is great. <laughs> um, but, you know, just to help our listeners, because, again, you know, like we said, you've done most of these podcasters to leaders, and I think it's kind of fun to talk to actual listeners and kind of people in congregations. So one of the hallmarks of why I would tell anybody to read your book that's even not a pastor or speaker is you go through the gospel message for each generation. And, you know, if I could just be so bold to ask, I don't want you to give too much away, but can you just kind of explain, you know, kind of how you're trying to contextualize the gospel for each generation, even help our listeners understand the complexity of sharing this message that doesn't change, but how do you contextualize it? So why don't you walk us through each generation?
2: Okay, yeah, I'll be glad to. Um and you're right, Peter, you know, most of the time I am addressing vocational, you know, ministers. But in this scenario, I think there is a significant opportunity to speak directly to the heart of people who may not be quote unquote, you know, leaders in the church or have some authority or a title. What's interesting about your question is right before I answer it, I've been getting as much, if not more feedback from non-preachers who via email, social media inbox have informed me that reading the book helped them reconcile family relationships. And many of them are from, you know, Xer and boomer parents who needed to reconcile with a millennial adult child. And I'm getting this feedback that the way that I you know, try to, to use your term, contextualize the gospel to the language of that generation, better help the readers understand where them and someone they deeply love was missing. That it wasn't per se in the right and wrong of the conversation as much as it was in the understanding, you know, of one another's, you know, linguistic preference, how one communicates And so I've been getting a lot of feedback from just normal people who are not preachers. And so I thank God for using the book in that way. What I try to do in each chapter that is the quarter book is to give the sociological factors in America, meaning political factors, technology, realities, uh, how the previous generation may have shaped them, economic uh, experiences. I try to give that historic context in American history as key to shaping the way these generations adopted communication styles and what I describe as their coming of age years. And so, my argument is that most generations are shaped and static in their value system communication style by the time they're in their early 20s, based on certain factors that were coming during their time of coming of age. And so from that, you know, uh, I deduce that each generation then is its own people group. And as its own people group, it has a culture, a language that is distinct and other than any other generation. And so, though boomers may get older, Xers are getting older, millennials are now entering adulthood and in adulthood, we have been greatly shaped by how technology, politics, economics, family, you know, factors, shaped us during our coming of age years. And so from that, language and culture is shaped for each generation. And then I think the the hard part was just trying to figure out, how do I give a, a name to each language? And and show that it how it stacks up against the other generation. So I'll just give a couple of examples. For the uh for the elder generation, the silent generation, born in 1945 and before, I would describe their language as propositional, meaning that they were shaped through some of the worst economic times through the Great Depression and, and wars, and also through hearing, you know, uh one-way communication via radio, some of the most pivotal messages that affected their way of life as Americans came through one-way radio. Their parents, you know, um lived in simpler times in the sense of their authoritarian, autocratic type of leadership. And so this preference for one-way direct, authoritarian, you know, communication that doesn't really shift to the right or the left, right on the nose, make it plain. That that's the way I was trying to describe their their language, and the example I gave was how do we preach John three sixteen through that lens? I think if I wanted to connect with people born in forty five and before, I would preach John three sixteen right on the nose, (laughs) right? Love the Lord Jesus. God sent Jesus. Repent of your sins, or die and go to hell. But God doesn't want you to go to hell because God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. Can I get a witness in here? (laughs) You know, (laughs) God is good, isn't he? Right. Um, very direct, one-way, propositional. I, I'm shocked to discover that that generation also prefers some practical application, but my point is they don't need a lot of tease as it relates to the the point that you're preaching from the text. And So when you start to move from silent towards now the youngest generation, Z, in between what you have is a continuum away from propositional towards more of a dialogical slash relational communication. And I just try to track how boomers moved to step away. Boomers appreciate, understand, and can fluently, you know, converse in propositional language because they were shaped by parents and preachers and teachers and leaders from that generation. But in their moving away from, they move towards more of a skeptical, hmm, questioning, All right? Boomers pushed the limit. Boomers, boomers lived on the edge. Boomers bucked societal norms. Boomers left You know, uh, rural upbringings, boomers built, you know, major cities and corporations and the world retrofitted itself around baby boomers. And as a result, they tested the norms, even though they appreciated them and understood them. So I try to use that realistic sociological, you know, uh, uh, experience to describe how they moved away from. So with boomers, I would put a little bit more tease in it. I would use something like C.S. Lewis's trilemma of Christ: is He liar, lunatic, or Lord? If I was preaching in a room full of boomers, and I I want to preach the gospel, I'm bringing C.S. Lewis to the table, right? <laughs> Which is he? Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? And we would spend some time. He could have lied when he such and such. How can a thirty-year-old claim to be before the father of the Jew, Jewish faith and Hebrew people, you know? Was he a lunatic? What you mean? You destroyed his temple and in three days I'll build it. it took, you know how long it took Solomon to build this temple, or was he Lord? You know, was he really who he said he was? And there's a crescendo, there's a, a consummation, so to speak, that boomers appreciate with some tease. Then when you move to exers, exers, I think is really where the hinge between. And it's not just because they happen to be hinged generationally, you know, but it, maybe it is, you know, X's are the smallest generation wedged between the two largest Xers Xers are where intellect really became unnecessary necessary in communication because Xers are where they use intellect to self-protect Xers use their brains to guard their hearts. Because their hearts were broken by so many institutions that they were told to trust in. And so you got the increase of post-secondary education. You have the internet, you know, um, you know, becoming a thing, the world wide web, and their ability to seek out knowledge for self as defense against what they were sold, this bill of goods, <laughs> whether it was religious, political, family, answers were well let down in many ways. And also skipped over if we think about how marketers uh, in major cities have reshaped themselves from attracting boomers to now millennials. Exers didn't get a lot of time in the limelight. And so as a result of that, exers got like a chip on their sleeve slash um, intellect that you they use to protect their heart slash inherent distrust because you know, my mom and my daddy got divorced when I was like, <laughs> Three years old, five years old, I watched my daddy leave and never come back, regardless of race or where you live in this nation. This concept of latchkey kids, independent, you know, um really shaped the extra generation. So preachers have to stimulate intellect. Xers refuse to leave their brains in the car when they come into church. That's not to say silent and boomers are stupid or non-intellectual. What it is to say is is that Xers demand it more. It's a higher priority that you be intellectually stimulating, historically accurate with extra biblical sourcing, proof, argue, you know, uh, prognosticate, you know, litigate all these defense terms, you know, uh, apologize in the sense of being an apologist. All of these defense terms of the gospel really land on where the exers are. Um, and then my group, millennial group, we remain intellectual, except we add this interesting dynamic that communication must be two way. We will be heard. Dialogue is necessary. Whereas for the older generations, they will appreciate dialogue, but they don't need it from their preachers. But millennials, if you want to reach us, you have to sound like a listener. You can't preach like an authority, you know, authoritative. <laughs> you know, autocratic, you know, uh, you know, man of God, you know, based on whatever rank or ordination you hold or woman of God. You have to, you have to communicate like a listener. Uh, and it has to be palpable. It can't be faked. Um, and you have to be authentic and and less mystical. You know, if you think about it, some of the older generations, the more spiritually authoritative you were, the better. <laughs> They didn't want to know much about their preachers. They just want to know, do you preach the Bible good? <laughs> Millennials are different. They could care less about how good you preach the Bible. Is your life accessible? Can I periscope into your daily life? Do you go live on social media? What are you like when you are not preaching? Is there a difference between personas of Daryl and Dr. Hall? And wherever that gap Exist is where my trust, (laughs) you know, where you'll lose my trust. And so um, dialogue, you have to sound like a listener. So in preaching the gospel to in a dialogical way, I have to affirm intellectual otherness. And I even have to do something most preachers in previous generations may not have been as comfortable with doing when you're making a sermon, right? I'm so I'm pretending like I'm in a a uh, a uh, 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 a workshop right now, building my sermon. There are a lot of things. Once the sermon, I'm trying to give an example. Once the sermon is finished as a product, most generations would just take this. Here's my sermon. Millennials want to know what did you leave out, what buttons did you leave out, what what was left on the cutting room floor, why. Right. Not just here's the finished product of my proposition and biblical principle, but here's how I wrestled to even arrive at. (laughs) Right. Hey, y'all, if I'm preaching the gospel to a world of millennials, yeah, I'm degreed, I'm ordained, you know, I have, you know, this religious responsibility as preacher. But they want to know where I struggle to believe this, too. And not in a way that I'm pandering. But in a way that I'm authentic, that, yeah, even with a doctorate degree and 15 years of theological training, I still struggle at times to accept the biblical account of, you know, this woman caught an act of adultery. So, you know, I'm just giving an example. So dialogue, you have to sound like a listener and affirm the otherness of their point of view to earn. It's an exchange. I affirm to earn an audience to give God's point of view on the subject matter or the biblical narrative's point of view. So that's the short of it. I go on and on, but I don't want to Do you gen-
0: Can you give Generation Z? <laughs>
2: yeah. Okay. And Gen Z is, uh, again, and, and I include this continuum in the appendices of the book, we're moving from pro- propositional towards dialogical. And then I would describe Gen Z as relational. Meaning, and and I wrestled with this. I'm going to just be honest with you all. In the research, when we did it, Gen Z only had adults from like 19 to 22. So the bulk of Gen Z was still children and we couldn't factor in that adjustment in point of view from childhood to adulthood. So I struggled to clarify if their relational leaning was primarily because they were children and teens at the time or because that was their generational you know uh, thumbprint like would this remain static with them and my friends at barnard they, they believe that the relational language or nature of Gen Zers will remain static as they grow older so yeah Gen Zers are a more relational meaning they have to trust you before they'll listen to you <laughs> and it's is. It's, less intellectual and is more transparent. And a part of the breakdown between older and experienced people and ministers and the Gen Z group that we're trying to reach is that none of the credentials that matter in the older, you know, generation translate if you're not transparent, meaning transparency, you can't preach transparently. You can only be transparent, <laughs> right? you It's either you is or you isn't, regardless of credential, regardless of experience, are you translucent? Are you transparent? Can I see through you in the sense that you are open? Are you warm? Are you approachable? Are you trustworthy? Are you consistent? And that's where it gets a little tricky because now it's moving out of you know, rhetorical skills and hacks and rhetorical approaches. Now it's moving to personhood, who I am as a person. And Gen Z is going to require more of your personhood than Xers will. Xers just want to know, can you intellectually prove, defend, consider, argue? And I may perhaps might believe <laughs> Ziers want to know: Are you authentic and real? And can I trust you? And will you be here next week? <laughs> you know, like the week after? Are are you a dependable? And I mean, I'm saying that particularly because I know Aaron is in youth ministry, and I've spent five years there as well. There is a there is a trust factor that comes with dependability, and those are reciprocal. as As you are dependable, you will be trusted, and as you are, you know, um, trusted, you will be dependent upon. So the relational nature of Gen Z is something that can't be faked. It can't uh, can't be hacked. It challenges the preacher or person in any capacity to really be who they present themselves to be.
1: Yeah, I mean everything you say resonates so much <laughs> with me. It, it you know it, it, practically how this played out in one one talk with my students was we were talking about vaping, right? And you could go okay. if I were talking, you know, reading your book. If I was talking to the Silent Generation, I just bam, bam, bam. This is what the Bible says. These are the truths. This is why you need to stay away from any unwholesome any. You know, boom, 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 boom. Your body's a
0: temple. Don't do your body's it, a temple. God. Don't do it.
1: You know, as I go down. Praise on, the Lord. <laughs> As I go down the yeah. ladder, and, yeah, right. And the, you get the claps and the amen. and then as you go down the ladder, you know, like this is the study. This is why it's bad for you. Like it, this proves that this is a, a bad way of life, or you know. To, and I remember preparing that for the kids, and I'm like, man, none of this is gonna hit them at all, you know. So what I ended up doing, and I got feedback that it was effective, was I personally, as Aaron McGinnis, processed through uh, how I would make the decision and I did the pros, the cons, the, the what I called the good, bad, the biblical, and then I came to my own conclusion and was like you don't have to come to that conclusion but this is how I came to that conclusion uh, you go ahead and make choices for yourself and you know hoping that the relational equity we've we've built over the years yep. from talking with them makes them latch on and be like you know what I'm going to try to think about this the way that person thinks about it or or what yep. and there's just so many decisions Youth ministers have to make, for example, I I film in my in my house and I do house tours for the kids and I show them my cats and I do prayer requests for all of them and talk about my you know my grandma's illness in order to build relational equity, um, yeah. it, it, which you don't quite get from a stage where it feels like there's a barrier, yeah. but with a you know with a silent generation man the stage is where the truth comes from you know so yeah. Um, yeah. so it's really interesting how it plays out um, on you know the practical level for these kids and, and and for me to like you know be be in and out of that is really really fascinating yeah I don't know I I just was resonating so much with what you were saying man that is so cool
2: that is so cool you are from from just your description man you nailed it and I know that uh I know that God is pleased man and blessing your faithfulness and your sensitivity to their unique needs and you know i do believe that the relational equity that you're building you're giving them the frame of mind to think through not just the answer <laughs> even if it's a biblical answer is here's how i would process it as a person so man that's dope thank you for sharing that
1: yeah well and thank you for writing things that put language to that as well so we could <laughs> you know talk and process through that
0: so, well yeah. you know one of the things that i'm hearing <clears throat> and i, I don't want to pander to myself as a pastor or all of it. So we had a guest on named J.R. Briggs and we talked about the question, why is the church, why are church leaders so messed up? I think you're even painting a picture of there's a ton of churches. And I've met every generation from Gen Z to uh, the elders. I always want to say traditionalists, but it's the elders. And one, yeah. yeah, so you're painting a picture of actually how complicated it is to do intergenerational relationships. And what J.R. Briggs said was, he's like, your pastor's human. And I I think what you're even saying to the non-speakers, and this is why you're getting the positive feedback. Oh, there's a lot of grace there. Like, You know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to offend someone when I preach through a throwaway line or something like that. And I need to hear when a different generation says that didn't resonate with me. But on the other hand, it's got to be like they're coming from a different generation. That is not a that's not a deal breaker for that. I, I think what I hear you saying is there's a ton more grace in these conversations that we need to have.
2: I mean, yes and yes because i think earlier you asked the question peter how has this research shaped me i don't know i can't remember if it was you or him. but when i'm when i said that it deepened my compassion i think the deeper one's compassion the more grace your your position to give you're right what it says is okay let us instead of talking about me as you know Dr. Hall or what have you as preacher, let's talk about me, Daryl, my dad, big Daryl, I'm a little Daryl. <laughs> um my dad had me when he was nineteen years old. My dad is a gym Xer. I am a, a millennial and I'm thirty five. My dad is fifty uh whatever thirty five plus nineteen is. He's fifty four. Me and my dad have had disagreements and still do not agree on some areas in life, whether that's political, you know, relational. We may just have distinct differences. But because I understand how my dad was shaped. I give grace to him. In listening to him, explain his point of view unsolicited advice <laughs> unsolicited advice right <laughs> he'll give me and i recall you know me and my dad having a disagreement about something and it, it came to a head and i was you know more than excited to prove to him how different i was from my siblings <laughs> though he must think he's talking to one of my siblings he gonna learn today he's talking to And I can recall after we kind of calmed down from it, I asked his advice about how to better disagree with him. And he said to me, son, you know, just always be open to me being able to speak and give unsolicited advice. Even if you don't accept it, be open to at least me giving it to you. And when we reconcile after that spat and that disagreement, I realized then the grace we both have to give each other How we've been shaped. And that is so many lenses, Peter, racial lenses, socioeconomic lenses, gender lenses, regional What region of this country where my hope in writing this book was just to bring in another lens that's equally as viable and maybe more viable. That we never talk about how generations shape, shape the way a person thinks, which gives me grace for what I don't understand or grace for. Where I may disagree, and I mean, not not in the sense of you know right or wrong, in the sense of preference is what I'm getting at. That if they prefer, you know, a different approach, that it gives me grace because I understand they have been shaped in a way that they can't unshape themselves. So and it, and it's amoral. I mean, we're not talking about immoral things. We're talking about things that are amoral, neither good nor bad. It's just perspective. It's just point of view. It's just preference. It's not, you know, "Thus say the Lord, and thou shalt not." It is just preferential things, and I think that is what we give grace to each other for. And when we don't, that, that's that is what creates generational stratification and splits in the church. And I'm gonna take my group, and you keep your group. When it didn't boil down to are we are, wait are we disagreeing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection? What are we disagreeing about? Music preference? What are we disagreeing about? Time of service on Sunday? (laughs) You know, what are we disagreeing about? Can the preacher wear skinny jeans or should the preacher wear a full suit every week? There's a lack of grace in those differences. Did I, I kind of answered your question and added something to it? But I hope I answered
0: it. No, I I think you did. And you know, you've brought up a couple times diversity and and uh, just racial issues. And I I guess I would think it would be unfortunate for us not to ask you this question. Um, Aaron and I are two white guys. Um, you know, you're a black person of color. How did you process generational differences? differently than maybe the way Aaron and I or some of our listeners. Um, I'd just be curious of how you process that because now we're adding another lens to the conversation. Yeah. I, I just want to hear from you.
2: Man, that is a great question. And I, I appreciate you asking it. Um, So my work was greatly inspired by my friend, Hayden Shaw, who wrote my forward. Uh, Hayden is a white guy as well, lives in the Midwest. He's a boomer, I believe. And um, I I was greatly inspired by one of his books, Generational IQ. And um, he and I disagree on some things, you know, from a practical standpoint of how to apply this in the church. But speaking specifically racial through the racial lens, when I wrote this work, what I tried to do was not just give the general factors in American history that affected all Americans, but in each of the generational chapters, I tried to speak specifically to how African Americans were uniquely shaped in that generation, and also women. So I I looked at a racial and a gender minority and tried to give some specific uh, sociological factors to how Millennial blacks or millennial women were shaped during that coming coming of age time because I felt, you know, quite frankly, the responsibility to do so. That being a man of color uh, from the South and having this tremendous opportunity to partner with Barner Group and published by Ibp to not just leave it. Uh, racially sterile. And I also was writing a book during the pandemic where a lot of racial tension was just um, spewing, you know, because of the George Floyd case and Omar um, Arbery here in Georgia. And so I was writing the book during the early part of the pandemic 2020. And so I just felt like I would be less of a steward, a poor steward, to not kind of address those and try to give some insight into them. Um, That's because I think sometimes we can assume that American history and African American history are one and the same when the reality is it isn't. It is and then it isn't. And we as, you know, as black folk have developed this flexibility, that, you know, Jared Alcantara, he, he writes a book about a, a great black preacher uh, Um, and he talks about how he used protein reflexivity. I had never heard of the term before. Protein reflexivity and how this black preacher was able to preach in black and white settings in the early 90s. And this protein reflexivity or this ability to be in both worlds, almost seamlessly this adaptability is a better word to describe it I just thought it was so amazing how um he was talking about Gardner C. Taylor I thought it was so amazing how Gardner C. Taylor personified it as a preacher what black people do in everyday life we, we live in both worlds and we are able to engage in both because we have to um, we have to in order to you know um be productive members of society. So I tried to speak to that and how each generation was uniquely shaped, how women in that generation and black folk in that generation were uniquely shaped. Not because you know the general experience of Exorcus wasn't enough, but to add that nuance just for deeper understanding and I hope, you know, for deeper compassion.
0: What's a did I ask specific, a question
2: for
0: you? You don't know. You, you totally uh-huh. did. What's a specific example of you, um, you know, again, processing through the last question? You can pick any generation just to help our listeners understand. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll kind of, you know, pitch this out there. I've I've heard, you know, from, you know, some african-americans and black people of color that you know sometimes the younger generation is a little bit more pushing towards change and the older generation is you know kind of a little bit more flexible and again it's not that's not general that's just what i've heard but i guess i'd be more curious on the personal side of you not at large but just you know when you think about maybe the way you relate to gen uh you know you talked about your dad but also the way you rate, Relate to Gen Z, help our listeners understand how those generational differences might play out in a practical sense in your life, especially in terms of you know being a person of color. Oh man, that is a great
2: question. Um, what I would say is, so let's just take, you know, um, I, I think I think I can use my family in this this scenario. My my dad and me and my siblings. When we have we have like a family group chat, and when we have certain political or religious conversations, we collectively, the millennials in the group, are either we just let them, you know, we let my dad be dad because he's gonna state his point of view or give it, or or we we push back in ways that could be a little uncomfortable if not discussed. And so this happens, when I say political, I mean the way we, how do we as black people respond to what we still see happening as relates to police brutality, you know, voter suppression or these various issues that that we interpret through the lens of racism and the older generation will have one way of responding to it and the younger generation will say you know no we need to you know do this and do that and it's not about you know just the bible and the gospel and now we're all one we need to blah blah boom, boom. i do think in, even in my own world in my own life i see more of a fire and what i see the older generation is more of a savvy right it's a savvy it's not it's not a lack of fire, it's the presence of wisdom, of how to navigate. And what I see in the younger generation, as we want to respond, is I see a fire, anger. Um, what I hope is a righteous indignation. But a fire, a righteous indignation, This this um, unction to action. And in the older generation, I see a savvy, a, a more of a, knowledge of how to navigate more of a here's how we could strategically do it. And at times. The younger generation could think the older generation has lost it. Right. What happened to the marching and the this and all this stuff we read? Y'all are kind of over the hill and the older generation at times can look at the younger generation as. um As uh, on the edge of being lost, so to speak, which I think cyclically, right? Every older generation accuses the younger generation of being too far gone and maybe lost. And if they don't stop, it could be too late, Uh, you know, over the hill type of thing. So I see that in my own family. But I think in a greater black community, we see that as well, which is why if you notice during the pandemic, much of the marching and retort and political action was not with church leaders at the forefront. Whereas the civil rights movement did have church leaders at the forefront. That is a big thing in the black community where the black church has been this not just safe haven, but this embassy, this racial embassy, this headquarters, right, of of organization and movement. Where the younger generation now is saying, No, y'all older blacks, y'all keep going to church, but We're going to handle this our way, more of a fire, more of an action, more of a doing without necessarily wanting um, to have a minister or the gospel or the Baptist church or black church, excuse me, you know, at the forefront of that. And so it is playing itself out or has uh, even in the way we respond as black people to what is going on in our nation and the generations are responding differently.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, being a millennial, I, I've heard that too. I, I I like the fire analogy or I was even thinking of, I don't know, driving a sports car or something where the younger generation's like, there's something wrong. Pedal to the metal. I don't care how many turns no. there are. I'm going <laughs> to knock over some barriers, but I'm going to do something, right? I'm going to s- try to slide around the side, but I'm going to put the f- pedal to the metal. And we are going for it. And the older generation might be like, you know, we, you, we did that in the past and it wasn't the most effective, you know, I'm going to slow down on these curves and I'm going to take a more angled approach and that could be seen as taking no action or being yeah. slow and unchanging um, when maybe it is wise and, and even so, even the, the older generations could, uh, maybe a, a better view would be to look at the younger generations and, be, and take them under their wing and say that fire is good, yeah. it's coming from a great place, let's harness it let's put it yeah. towards social change and let's go for it and and instead, instead of the, the two appreciating both approaches. It's you know, we're writing and what we're seeing is that they're just hating and separating and saying one is bad, one is good, um and, and moving forward with no unity. Yeah. Which which is cool. I have I do have another question for you and it's this it's a very practical question. And okay. it's this. How do you think, uh, you know, Jesus as Christians, we we look to him as the example. How do you think Jesus would engage generations differently than we do? And what are some like practical tips to become more like Jesus in the way that we (laughs) approach generations and generational gaps?
2: Um, that is a great question. Okay. So one of the awesome things about being a believer is we have to guess less about how our deity would respond in real time. (laughs) I mean, we still have to do the theological work, which is, you you just asked me a theological question. Take what you know about Christ from the Gospels and what you know about the context we live in and could you make some practical connections? The beauty is is that we have to do less guessing. Praise God for the incarnation (laughs) Um, and for him being God with us. What I think we have to do, what I think Jesus would do differently, is first of all, I think Jesus would be more compassionate to. I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I don't. I don't want to be. I'm gonna say it this way and hope that I'm connecting across generations. Jesus would be more compassionate to the stand to the varying standards each g- cohort needed to believe. I don't think Jesus would play one generation against another if one generation just has a different expectation to help their belief. And I don't think this is just me. I don't think it's just a hunch. When you look at the end of John, the post-resurrection narratives, the, the, the disciples are in the upper room, the door closed. Jesus appears in the room and the disciples are amazed. Well, that first upper room appearance, all the disciples weren't there. Thomas is one of those disciples. Now, Thomas, we know is a twin. Thomas, we also accuse of being this doubter. And Thomas gets a bad rap, you know, for his unbelief. The next time they're gathered in this upper room, similar to the first time the doors are closed, Jesus appears in the room in bodily form. When Jesus appears, well now between these two appearances, they go tell Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, I won't believe unless I put my finger in his hands and my finger in his side. The next time they gather, Jesus appears, Thomas is present. Jesus goes straight to Thomas. It says, Thomas, here is the proof you need. See my hands. Here is the proof you asked for. See my side. Do you believe now? Oh my Lord, and oh, my God. Oh, you you believe because you sing, bless those who believe without saying Before Jesus chastened him for needing to see to believe, Jesus offered the proof he asked for <laughs> to believe. You know, right? Like like Jesus was not been out of shape about, okay, um, if I've gone this far to convince you of God's love, I'll take another step further. Now, to me, that's the Lord's c- compassion with a varying standard for belief. Here's what's interesting though. What Thomas was asking for was only what the other disciples had already experienced. He just needed it in his time and through his experience. The other disciples had already seen him appear in his room, already seen his nail-marked hands and, and, and uh his spear, you know, uh in his side. They had already seen this and they were convinced. So them being convinced and him not being convinced is not a demerit of him. It is to say he needed an experience they had already had. So when we think about how the generations relate to our faith in Christ, I think Jesus will be more compassionate with the generations who still need to see something before they believe instead of comparing them to the generations who've already seen enough to know Right. The silent traditional generation, they watch God keep them through the Great Depression. Why wouldn't they believe? <laughs> they yeah, they love propositional communication because they are convinced they know the Lord is good. But now we've had, you know, a global pandemic. Um We're heading into, I think, a recession now. So now Gen Z will get to see. Oh, that the same God who could be dependent upon 110 years ago is the same God who could be dependent upon now. So I think Jesus would be more compassionate to the varying standards each generation will have before they place their faith. And he will be willing to adjust, you know, um, within reason, within reason. I think another thing that um, that Jesus would do is I think Jesus would keep and, and obviously, we saw him do this. He was a master of keeping truth and grace in perfect tension. <laughs> I still don't know how he did it. You know, it's one of those things we marvel at. Like, how did how did he know to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers, you snakes? But then to turn to, you know, uh, a woman calling adultery and say, "All right, I, I don't condemn you, but don't you do it again." but then turn to a Sarah Phoenician woman and say, I can't feed the dogs the kids food. And then she responds in faith. And he's like, what an amazing fact. Like, I don't know how Jesus was so present in moments. That's the other thing he would be. Very present. How was he so present in moments to keep grace and truth in tension? I think sometimes in generations, we miss each other when we emphasize one over the other. And you know, vilify or criticize the other generation for his imbalance emphasis in the other direction. So, you know, if a a boomer pastor emphasizes truth, the Bible says truth, but the millennial pastor is emphasizing grace. You got to see this from different points of views. There could be an inherent, you know, disconnect when both could be imbalanced in that tension. I think Jesus, I don't know how he would do it, but we saw him do it then. I'm pretty sure he would do it now. He would know where to give grace and where to hold the standard for every generation. He, he would know, and he would know how to do it um, in a way that was that was foolproof, right? He could address the exers' need for intellectual stimulation and show compassion to their broken heart you know collective broken hearts um he he, i think he would he would okay millennials let's dialogue but that dialogue wouldn't be you know only me hitting you overhead with truth or only him giving grace for all of your different you know opinions i think he would engage in dialogue keeping truth and grace in perfect tension so i think he would he would show compassion for the various levels of of needs for for belief. I think he would keep grace and truth in perfect tension where generations tend to have a preference to be in balance in one direction. And I also think Jesus would be very, very present. Very present. Jesus would be awesome for Jan z because his relational presence would, even as it did then, you know, uh, to younger generations, his, his warmth, his approachability, his, you know, um, I think his presence would just be, his presence would do the work that we try to do with our sermons, but we should be done with our presence. But because he practiced, I can't remember who, uh, a book called Faithful Presence. He practiced faithful presence with God. It made him able to be present, fully present i think he would be the same with us i think his presence would just be you know um effective it would it would help to get beyond some of the barriers without
0: frustration man this ep this episode went by way too fast um So, so Daryl, you, uh, well, I'll have to go Dr. Hall on you right now, but, uh, you know, you have an open invitation, uh, on this podcast and, uh, you know, we're definitely going to have you, have you back. So, uh, um, so we always end every episode with the question, what does Jesus have to do with this topic? I know you kind of just answered it, but I think you have more. So this is how it works. Aaron and I answer that question and then you get to clean up whatever Harris see we messed up does that sound good <laughs> <laughs> so aaron do you want to go first or do you want me to go first I mean, I'll try to be quick. I'll go first. What does Jesus have to say
1: about this topic? Thankfully, he's shown us, I think you're right. Compassion, love, grace, perfect tension, seek the father's will in all relationships because how are we supposed to know that perfect uh, tension of grace and truth? Um, Love all people, know and love so that the compassion and our love will be evidence to all that he is near, you know? So um, I think it has so much, uh, there's so much here uh, about uh, bridging generations about talking to one another, having actual conversations in community and and a a community that Jesus would want us to have where we are in agreement, we're of one mind. And unless we do the work to love one another, uh, we're toast, you know, in that sense.
0: There you go, Pete. Oh, man, I thought that was good. I um daryl as you were you know just throughout this episode i i kept on thinking jesus for being an all-knowing savior asks way more questions than we give him credit for and um i'm thinking about two situations two conversations i've had to you know within the last 48 hours and um you know the first one was you know i had an older generation person say to me they were in a professional environment and they felt like the person went too far and they asked me, you know, what would you do about it? And I owe all this credit to my mental health therapist wife, you know, and I said, you know, there's certain statements that you can make that actually elicit responses like questions. And, you know, the, the thought that came to me was I would respond to that person. I'm a little surprised that you shared that much. And I think the way Jesus would handle this question. And as a pastor, I'm looking into my own soul. You know, of like when someone says something that, you know, is it it doesn't sit with me well, you know, what questions do I need to ask? Or my wife's classic line, which is tell me more, you know, tell me more. And, you know, and just for our listeners, the second story is I I just met with someone that's Generation Z this week and, you know, they came to me and the line that will just forever be ingrained because of this book i just want to see things from all sides and if you don't understand generations you're and again this is practical not just i mean we believe everything is influenced by faith but this is practical for work for every and you know they had questions about science and the bible and you know it it, it took a little bit to kind of engage and kind of say, hey, help me understand, before I respond and give you the answer that I think, I think what Jesus would do is, hey, can we get behind the question that you're really asking? And I think every generation, you know, from the eldest elder, hey, help me understand why this truth is so important. And then to the youngest Gen Z, you know, I, I, hear you pushing me on this. There's something there. Is there a personal story? And I, I think Jesus would do that. And, um, yeah, so I, I just think Jesus would ask a lot of questions and would see people in ways that we don't. And I'll close with this. Cause anytime you get a pastor going, they just keep going. But you know, you talked, you talked about seeing people like Jesus you know uh, there's a portion of him that he knows hearts he's all knowing but then there's a portion of that that's our responsibility are we really seeing the people that we're with each generation are we seeing the body language are we hearing the tone in their voice or where I've been sinful and where I've messed up I'm crafting my response before they've even finished talking and I think Jesus was a master with that and um yeah so that's all I got go ahead and clean up what uh,
2: you know, Yeah, you know yeah no those, those are awesome uh, I agree with you and yeah. about the community and and That's what Jesus, I think, would expect us to do or what he would have to say about this. And I agree with you as well, Peter, about the the ability to position oneself as student of a person, to win a person by helping them get beneath the layers, you know, of of what they present. trying to think. I can think of a couple things. The first thing I think Jesus would have to say to us about this is that the sons of darkness are more true than the sons of light. Meaning as, as believers, we shouldn't let the business world and the political world take generational science and leverage it for their agendas more than we take it to leverage it for the kingdom agenda. Um, I think Jesus will challenge us in the area. You know, don't let Amazon and city planners, you know, who are developing these live workplace spaces, don't let them outdo you in adjusting their approach and using data and information to further their agendas when you have an eternal agenda. Um, I think Jesus will say that. I think another thing Jesus would say is after all he did to reach people where they were, we should be willing to do more to reach people where they are. Like I know, you know, I know we do a lot to try to understand people, and I don't want this research to be a burden. Like, oh, I gotta learn something else, <laughs> you know. But I would say that there's no effort we can ex- expand in the process of trying to reach people for God's glory. It's not worth it, and that our motive, our motivator, is fixing our eyes on Jesus, to often the author and finisher of our faith. You know, he he went. He, he left no stone stone unturned. He he went the full distance to reach people where they were. And that's even before he went to the cross. Um and so our motivation is him. You know, as you represent me, I think he would tell us as we represent the Lord Jesus that hey, we can we can add this to our tool belt. Even if it's a new tool, we not we're not as adept with. It. We can we can see people through the generational lens on top of the other demographic lenses. If it means being able to reach them, because Jesus was the one who was willing to, you know, exemplify. He set that standard for us and he gives us hope for that. Uh, if there's anything else I think Jesus would say about this is mm, I think he would say to us. And I don't want to—I don't want to sound heavy-handed with this, but I think he would say that, especially the church leaders and family leaders. If you are the entrenched generation who doesn't want to share territory with the emerging generations, I think Jesus would say, "What was yours must become ours, if it's really going to bring God glory." You know, like. What do I mean? Like, um, I'm a father of three Gen Z boys, 14, 7. Me and my wife, we're millennial parents. This is our house that we're sitting in. (laughs) We pay the note on the mortgage. We (laughs) pay the utilities. But what's yours, meaning what's mine, must become ours. If, it's going, if this is going to be a home that really glorifies God, it has to have space in its culture to be shaped by the seven-year-old who pays for nothing as much as it is by the daddy who pays for everything, if it's going to truly be ours. And to see my role as father, provider, and breadwinner, as this is my stewardship of grace. This doesn't make my vow, my intrinsic value higher than my 7 year old in our family unit. I'm a steward of the manifold grace of God as father. I'm not more important to the family unit as father. And so I would say that to, to the generations who are entrenched, who have done well, who led well, who have, um, you know, worked for the Lord for a long time. That though you have significant responsibility compared to the, you know, younger generations that you hope to meet to reach, intrinsic value is equal. Your authority and influence is your stewarding of God's grace. You know, it's not your church, it's our church, regardless of what all you've done for it. And we we appreciate you for that. And to the younger generation, I would say, you know, as... Loving, older generational leaders make room for us in our families, in our churches, in professional arenas that we show due honor and respect for those who come before us to, uh, to be faithful stewards in their generation. And hopefully we we'll can be faithful stewards in ours. I think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he would say,
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, just as we close up, uh, we, we'd like to thank the great Krista Clayton because uh, two weeks after this episode airs, you can go to IVPPress.com, put in Why God, you get 30% off this book. So we want to make sure we let all of our listeners know that. Go buy Daryl's book. Daryl, where can people find you online? Where's the best place? Oh,
2: the best place is social media, uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter. My handle's the same. At I am Daryl Hall. That is I A M D A R R E L L H A L L. Or you can find me have a YouTube channel with uh, various sermons and devotionals on there. If you like some more content, uh, you can find me also on my YouTube channel uh, as well. And if you want to email me directly, you can email me. My email is hall at I am Daryl Again, dhall at I am Daryl
0: Man, what a great episode. And as always, you can find this episode and other great episodes by going to whygodwhypodcast.com and then uh, click the subscribe button. You'll get this episode and other great episodes. We thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful day.